Welcome back to the 87th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, talking about the revival and then the death of the city again, talking about the Fed trying to intervene with misinformation about the financial system, and whether that's justified in order to maybe stave off a wider financial crisis. And talking about how DEI may be dying on college campuses. And then, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, which is better? A quick and easy hot dog from a street cart? Or grilling your dog yourself on their back patio. Or or cooking over a campfire in the woods. You know, while my may, example may kind of fall apart a little bit, which do you prefer? The city way, the suburban way, or the wild way? Throw your comments down there in the comment section. I'd love to respond. This is a little bit more of a lighter one, not so much political theory, philosophizing, no deep comments, just something a little goofy that I thought of, and love to hear what your thoughts are. All right, so let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Counterpunch. The death and life and second death of great American cities. So, of course, we've had a discussion on this podcast before about if you can could tell if you listen to my bias, how I don't necessarily love cities. And for a while there, they were the heart, the beating heart of America. I know that's an overused analogy, but they really were. It's where people came together, where culture thrived, where there was a diverse set of opinions, where we were able to collaborate with people that may think a little bit differently. And we were able to come together, share in the wealth of what America has brought us, create new innovations. And sometimes we were able to actually agree on where we wanted that city to go and whether or not we wanted it to be a place where everybody could come join in the prosperity. And for a while there, that's how it looked. I mean, if you think about Detroit at the turn of the 19th, or sorry, I guess it would have been the 20th century. And there was so much life there. There was a booming industrial industry, mainly automobiles. And then you see the, the flight. A lot of people leave the city rapidly. And then we focus more on the suburbs. Oh, well, that's the American dream. Going into any time past the 1950s, the white picket fences, the small homes... That is the American dream for a lot of our parents. If you're a Gen Z millennial, if you're a baby boomer, you probably know that that was the dream for your maybe your parents who were just coming out of a tough World War II era. They grew up in a really hard time. They wanted their own land. They wanted the ability to have a house for their family and be able to provide. And a lot of people moved out to these suburbs and they saw it as the new American way. And then there was a revitalization of the cities in the late 90s. Maybe it was the ideas that millennials and some later Gen Xers and some early Gen Zers have 
how that we can come together in this giant community. But once again, that trend is shifting backwards. But I, I am jumping ahead a little bit. So let me jump to a quote. It'll kind of summarize what was going on, how this came about, and we can elaborate on the discussion. Quote, the United States started as a rural nation. Rapid urbanization occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as immigration and the great migration of former slaves from the South and America's second industrialization around steel, cars, and other forms of manufacturing built metropolises from New York to San Francisco. But post-World War II, the urbanization of America cooled. Outdated, dirty factories, overcrowding, cheap land, and the emergence of cars, as well as federal money to build highways, fueled returning veterans and their baby boomer families to the suburbs in the search of the American dream of a home with a white picket fence. So the quote does go on, but you can see what I was highlighting here. The white picket fence ideal. At the end of the day, I want to have a few acres for my family. I want my kids to be able to play without me worrying about them going out into the streets and possibly getting hit. I want to have a community of families out there in the suburbs where we can all get together. We can have a Sunday picnic. Our kids can play together. It's a safe area, and it's not as overcrowded. We have a little bit of room to breathe. Privacy, you know, has always been a key value of Americans, and that's one thing that the suburbs offer more than the cities. And let's be clear, I would argue that, you know, the only place that really provides that is having a few chunks of land in the middle of the woods, and you're out there cooking on the campfire every single day or doing whatever you want to do in the woods. But there is more privacy than when you're stacked on top of each other or your apartment is right next to somebody else's and you can hear them having a fight at midnight or you can hear them make up at midnight. So at the end of the day, there's this this move. And then also we can't forget about cars, which is a point that I really did overlook. There's a really interesting highlight in this article, or at least that first part of that quote talking about the development of the car, how it became more economical for just the middle-class family in order to buy a family car. And with the building of more infrastructure, it made it really easy for you to drive into the city if you worked there or into the malls that are in the city from the suburbs rather than having to be close and having to walk or bike there. So that's a very interesting shift that I forgot to highlight. And obviously, you know, some people may be listening like, Alex, why, why are you talking about this? Why do you care? And I, I just find it very interesting when we look back at the demographic shifts that happened in America and trying to analyze why they happened. Because maybe we can extract something for the future. If cities are right now, they're dealing with a post-pandemic world where they aren't actually retaining citizens, they're losing citizens. And if you're a person who loves cities, then you may have to look back at these historical trends and understand why they left in the past. Obviously, it is different now, but you can also look at how they came back, why they came back, and then maybe you can spur different populations in the future or those same populations to come back. And I think that's really important because whether you like it or not, even though I don't want to live in a city myself, they are a huge huge, important part of American life. Normally, you think of them as big transportation hubs, or nowadays you may think of New York as a giant financial hub. A lot of the major institutions that prop up the economy or 
not even just problem of the economy, that perpetuate culture live in some of these big cities. And we can't have a Detroit-style era problem where every single city is losing a population very quickly. Obviously, the people will move to other cities and will have revitalizations in other areas. I mean, look at Knoxville or Nashville right now, or some areas in Florida, Texas, some areas in Nevada. So obviously it will shift, but we don't want to necessarily leave those old cities behind where we have built up that infrastructure, where a lot of commerce does flow through there. And there are lots of people there who can't necessarily move away. And that's not necessarily fair that the people who can't afford to move away take their tax dollars with them and then leave the people who can't afford to pick up their entire lives and go to a different city to pay for the problems that now are theirs and theirs alone in those cities. So we have to do this in a balanced way. If we're going to move away from cities, fine. We have that prerogative. I, Like I said, I don't like cities. That's fine. But we can't leave some people high and dry in these terrible situations. But that's a later point or maybe even a different podcast because that is a really deep dive and I don't want to dismiss it so readily or at least bring it up and not be able to fully talk about it. So let's jump back to why they left the cities in the first place. This is talking around 1950s to the 1970s. Quote, now enter new urbanism. Suburbs are bad. Cities are good. So people are leaving the suburbs and they're going back into the cities. And this really hit its stride in the 90s. But it was happening before in the 70s. Cars are now bad. Mass transit, good. Density was good. Single family zoning, bad. The solution to what ails suburban sprawl once is the return to the cities. And beginning in the 1990s, that happened. Retiring baby boomers and eventually millennials and Gen Zs flocked to the cities. And it looked as if a new urban renaissance was upon us. Cities without manufacturing, but possessing arts, cultures, sports, tourism, the amenities of life for the new leisure class, as dubbed by Richard Florida. Now, urbanism did lead to many cities repopulating, yet again pushing poor people and communities of color around, this time in many cases to inner ring suburbs. New urbanism may have helped cities, but it did less to address segregation and help the poor. It merely moved people and the problems around. End quote. And that's what I was getting at. At the end of the day, let's be clear, I'm not saying that these people coming back in intentionally did it. And I'm not saying that the governments of these cities intentionally did it, but it happened. It was the result of incentives set up by the market. If people come back into these cities, they're trying to get lower, cheaper property that may be in areas that have historically been for poor people. And then, well, okay, I'm going to buy this place in wherever. I don't know any major district that was not well off and is now well off in a city. Sorry, I'm not very well informed about our major cities or at least the neighborhoods and which ones are up and coming right now. But they come in, they buy a house that may be a little bit cheaper, an apartment that may be a little bit cheaper. They fix it up. They tell people, oh, look what I did here. They bring their friends. Property values start to go up. Then the people that used to be able to afford that area 
are being pushed out because they can't afford these higher prices anymore. So it's just a natural progression of the market. And it's sad. It's not necessarily... It doesn't make me happy to hear about situations where people are getting pushed out of where their family may have lived for two generations because they can't afford all these new people flooding back in. But this trend was not long-lived. Then we have the pandemic. So from the 1990s to about 2018-19, that's about 30 years of growth, love really going back into the cities. But now people are realizing, oh, I can work remotely. It's the same, it's actually the same concept as Oh, I have a car, there's infrastructure, I can easily drive into the city to get what I need done without having to live there. Now it's, I can live almost anywhere and I can telecommute or I can Zoom or remotely work from 50 miles away and remotely work in the city with the rest of my team. So it's another evolution of technology that has allowed people to realize, I don't actually have to be in the city. And those populations that were in the city realized maybe we didn't like it as much as we we thought we did. Maybe at the end of the day, it's great to come of age in those areas in order to be informed, to get a diverse set of opinions, be able to interact with many, many different people, many, many different cultures, learn a little bit of empathy. Because when you live in those big areas, even though it doesn't seem like it to all of us tourists, It's probably because we're tourists and those big city people don't necessarily like seeing a lot of tourists. But you have to learn to, okay, I'm in a small apartment right now. I have two neighbors next to me, one below, one above. I might not want to play my music full volume because it may not actually be a good thing to have my neighbors hate me. Or maybe it's just I want to be considerate of others. You learn that when you're densely populated. When you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you're in that wood situation I mentioned earlier, and you have a house out there, you can play your music as loud as you want. Nobody's going to know. And even if someone can tell, it's not like they're going to care as much as if you're playing it at 12 o'clock at night, and like I said, you have four neighbors all around you, and they're going to come over and knock on your door and tell you to you know, cut it off a little bit. So I wanted to at least ask a question before we move on to the next article, which is, do you think that the reurbanization or the push to be part of cities was caused by culture or caused culture? Because as you noticed, it talked about millennials and some Gen Zers, and these are more democratic populations, and cities recently have been more thought of as democratic locations. So was it the push from these generations that made these cities more democratic, which I would say is not necessarily a good argument, but it is something that came across when I was making a counterexample to my thought process, which was the actual, the cities drew in these populations. These millennials and Gen Zers who are a little bit more democratic said, okay, hey, these cities, you know, they have some of my values. There's a little bit of cheaper land because, or cheaper apartments because people have been leaving. Why don't I go there and test my thought processes and see if I can get a job and make it big in the city. So, you know, if you have a thought, throw it down in the comment section. I would have loved to expand on it more. But at the same time, I do really want to talk about our next article. And I think it's a really important one. So I want to give it its fair due. All right. This one comes from Newsbuster. Tyranny. Feds to censor 
under guise of protecting financial system. So, you know, I'm just going, last one I kind of gave a little bit of headway, I gave a little bit of background. This one, I want to jump straight into a quote from the article because it can describe a situation better than I ever could. Quote, the U.S. government and leftists are, of all stripes, have set out to silence speech on big tech platforms to protect their preferred narrative on a number of issues, and the latest bailout news following recent bank failures is apparently no exception. Rep. Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky, tweeted March 12th that, quote, a Democratic senator essentially asked whether there was a program in place to censor information on social media that could lead to a run on the banks. As it turns out, end quote, as it turns out, there might be. The cybersecurity branch of the Department of Homeland Security, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, published a report adding financial information and disinformation in June 2022 to a list of threats and supposedly that supposedly pose a significant risk to critical functions of the federal government and that it should act on, end quote. And I know I just went through a lot. There's a lot to absorb there. Two main points. One, Massey is saying that a Democratic senator is asking whether or not the federal government has the power or mechanisms in place in order to censor information about the financial crisis in order to prevent a run on the banks. And then two, the CISA, the Central Security Infrastructure Security Agency, actually already has some policies in place that they could use in this situation. Why I find this concerning is we have seen, at least through the leaking of the Twitter files, that the government, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, have been involved with some of these social media companies. They've at least been able to talk to representatives asking, why is this person still allowed? What are you doing in this case? Do these things violate your terms of service? These sort of conversations. And while that's all in good, you know what? Sure, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the government is really genuinely trying to defend America. Maybe they're trying to stop missing mal and disinformation. But even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, it is a clear violation of the First Amendment. Even if I give them the benefit of the doubt and believe they're doing it for good reasons, I don't, I don't care. Even if you have the best reason in the world, you are violating the First Amendment. You are banning people from speaking. As a government agency, you are stepping in, asking a private platform, or at least engaging in a conversation with a private platform about the banning of certain information, people, so on and so forth. That is a clear violation of the First Amendment. And that's why Thomas Massey's tweet is concerning, or at least that's why he's highlighting it. And let's be clear. The, he says that the Democratic senator essentially asks whether, so maybe he's being a little bit inflammatory, he's trying to rile up people like me who are free speech absolutists, who are out here like, oh, we can't have the government involved in this process. Maybe that's exactly what he's doing, and maybe it worked. But we've also seen that the government has done this in the past. They have gone and talked about to these platforms about how we need to limit misinformation or disinformation about the vaccine, about different medical practices that may cause hesitancy towards, like I said, the vaccine. 
we have seen these policies in place before, and we've seen that the government normally takes advantage of a crisis. Not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to be outright anti-government. The government exists for a good reason, which is to ensure that our rights are protected, our natural rights that pre-exist them. But, and this is a big, big but, we know that in times of crisis, think the COVID pandemic, think this financial institution, think to the, this financial collapse or the few banks that are collapsing right now, think 2008, 2007, think 2001, all of these instances within my lifetime, and there are plenty more before that, or think the Great Depression, when FDR was able to consolidate power, come up with a whole bunch of works programs, and find a way to get around the legislator, essentially. Think of all these different times that there has been a crisis, there has been a problem, and in order to quell our fears, the government has stepped up and said, we can do something. We can do this, we can do that, we can help you. We can provide security. And in doing so, very often, they overreach their power as the U.S. government. They take a little bit more power than they had before because, what well, we have to ensure your security. We have to ensure that you are safe as a citizen. And this sort of thing falls in that category. The Democratic senator is supposedly saying, and even if they're not supposedly saying, let's take it at a pure thought experiment level. If they want to prevent runs on the bank, it could be, and I say could be, I'm not endorsing it, but I'm saying it could be a good practice to limit the amount of information that gets out there talking about the possible collapse of the banks because then people are less likely to, you know, go to their bank and try to take out their money. But at the end of the day, the real question is, should they be allowed to censor that information? Should they be able to protect the financial system by limiting your freedoms, protecting the ec economy, but limiting your freedoms? I would argue no. But that's just because I'm a person that believes in the rights that I was given by just being a human on this earth. And I think at the end of the day, we can't, if anything, well, if you want to take the rights argument out of it, I don't think that we should give up this power or we should, in a moment of crisis, allow them to do something like this because it only encourages them to find another crisis to do it again. And that is me being cynical and being anti-government for sure. But it is not a... I mean, think of the moral hazard argument. Let me put it that way. The moral hazard argument that you hear now is we can't bail out the banks because it's going to encourage risky behavior because they think they can just get bailed out again. Well, think of it the same way with government. If we allow them this one time during a crisis to step in and use their power to keep us safe, then they know that, well, hey, last time when people felt unsafe, we were able to jump in and get a little bit more power, have a little bit more influence over what's going on within the country. And, you know, we really want to keep our people safe. And the more influence we have, the more likely we are to do that. So maybe maybe we can point out that this is also a crisis and we can help people by doing this other policy. You see my logic here? And it could be flawed and it is very narrow-minded, or at least it is very single-focused. But I think that's something that we need to keep in mind. As a society that is 
absolutely dependent on the values that we have and the need for freedom, the want to have these rights that pre-exist government and that allow us to function as a society. I think that this is one thing you got to push back on. When the government is trying to encroach upon your rights, even if it is for your safety, you have to call them out about it. You have to ensure that they stay in their place. Because if we don't even notice these things, if there's a slow encroachment and we don't even point it out, then it doesn't even matter if they do it or not. I mean, let's be clear, it does matter if they do it. They shouldn't do it. But if we're not willing to point it out and lambast them for doing so, then we're not doing our job as an informed citizenry, which is to keep the government reliable, To keep, sorry, to keep the government liable for their actions because they only have power because we consent to them governing us. So that also means that we have to be an informed populace who has all the information that we can gather at our disposal, and we have to keep them liable. Otherwise, this system doesn't work. It turns into a government who has all the power and a citizenry who's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're doing this this week. Well, you know, it violates some of our rights, but it's okay. Okay, we understand that you're keeping us safe. No, we have to ensure that at the end of the day, we're keeping them liable. I've said it about four times. You get the point now. And that's why I wanted to bring up this article. And that's why I said I wanted to give it so much time. Because I think it's important and it speaks to something deeper than just, oh, they want to ensure there's not a bank run. It speaks to the values of our culture and how we as a society need to look at some of these things. Or at least in my opinion, how we as a society need to look at some of these things. You could totally disagree with me. Maybe you're down there in the comments saying, no, no, at the end of the day, this one right could be curtailed a little bit to ensure safety. Then we need to have that discussion as a society. And the only way to do that is to get this information out there and actually understand what they're proposing. And then we can actually have a conversation about whether we like it or not. But if this information ever gets out there in the first place, then we can't. And bring this up with your friends. If you have made it this far into the podcast... First of all, thank you, and I appreciate it. But bring this up with your friends. Don't just don't just listen. I know I'm preaching, or maybe this is bully pulpit style, but you can have a interesting conversation. You don't have to share this with them. You can go to the link in the description and get the article itself and just bring it up with a friend. See what they think. And from this sort of discussion, this back and forth with the different citizens of the United States, we can gain a better understanding of where people stand, what they want to do in this situation. And then if we're all in agreement that this is not okay, we can push back against the government. And if some people are in agreement that it is okay, then we have to hear their side and we have to take in consideration their opinions on this issue. Because at the end of the day, some people value safety more than they value the rights that pre-exist government. And I think that we should, as a society... We should value those rights more, the freedom, the liberty provided by them, more than the security provided by the government. But this is a bigger battle that's playing out on a social level. Think about COVID-19. People really wanted to be safe. They wanted to be secure. They wanted low risk. They weren't willing to go out and take a little bit of risk in order to experience freedom and liberty. And this is a big battle playing out on the social level. So why I'm saying go out and talk to your friends about this is if you 
are a person like me who doesn't necessarily agree with the we have to lock everything down and be as safe as possible. We have to make sure that the government is securing everything, making sure that we are as safe as possible and limiting all risk. Then we need to have a conversation with those other people who believe that is not the case, that the government should secure everything and ensure that the safety and security of the nation is the number one priority. And we need to come together and have those conversations. Because if we don't, we have exactly what happens here in this article. We have Thomas Massey, who is, no, liberty, freedom, don't you ever restrict my freedom of speech. And this other Democratic senator who's saying, well, no, no, we need to make sure that the banking system doesn't collapse. We need to make sure there's no risk so we can limit the free speech of some people. We have two different echo chambers where they just talk past each other. Thomas Massey just calls out the senator and tweets it to his friends and all his Twitter followers and says, look at how stupid they are. And the Democrat over here is saying, oh, well, I'm trying to protect America. I'm trying to protect the system. How come blah, blah, blah? You can't even see my side. And we have two different echo chambers. And instead of having those conversations coming to the middle, trying to understand one another, we just have accusations being thrown from one side and the other. And if you can't see me, I'm literally throwing my hands at one another right now. So that's why this article is important. And that is why I gave it so much time. All right. Let's jump to our last article. And I'm just going to read two quotes from it. It's one that comes from the Wall Street Journal. DEI is dying on college campuses. Or is it? And I, there's a few quotes here. It's mainly an amalgamation of quotes from college students who are discussing the topic. But there's two that I really like. One, the first one in the article, talks about socioeconomic views, and the last one talks about no victims. And I'll just read both of them to you, and I'll leave you with that before we move on to our daily delight. Quote, All low-income students get left behind today. At my college, there are more organizations and clubs for those with a diversity tag based on identity than for low-income students of any background, including male, white, and Asian students. And for some leadership programs, Asians are excluded from being considered people of color. When DEI practices disregard students' socioeconomic context, they make life more difficult for some low-income students who already cannot socially relate to their privileged peers, the majority at any elite college. Perhaps we should rethink with more nuance what the word minority means. Redefining it would signal great progress. And then the other last quote, quote, cultivating an environment of belonging should not be simply for diversity's sake, but for the sake of being unified through our differences. Hiring someone based on a DEI statement won't change the views of other people. Colleges should seek to promote an environment of recognizing differences, but not glorifying them to the extent that our differences separate us. Everyone has different life experiences, and promoting reconciliation rather than division encourages us to discuss what unifies us rather than what divides us, end quote. And, you know, normally I have a, a little bit of a sadder article when we jump into the Daily Delight. I think that's a great message to end our normal segments on, and now we're going to jump to the Daily Delight. We're going to try to put a little smile on your face. This one comes from Laughing Squid. Pet Otter lovingly carries his favorite toy in one paw. So little did I know how cute an otter holding a toy 
could be. Quote, an adorable pet otter named Kotaro lovingly carries his favorite toy mouse around the house and up the stairs in one paw. End quote. And honestly, he kind of looks like he's carrying around like a little baby otter. Like maybe he has a little bit of a mother instinct. He's like, oh, come with me, little guy. Quote, the toy was given to him several years ago and had been forgotten for a while. However, Kotaro fell in love with the toy again when it was brought back to his attention, end quote. And if you want to see any of the video, cute videos or photos or read any of today's article, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, Google Podcast, where you can download it, listen to it in the car. And there's also the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. I post the link directly to the YouTube videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.